book of Genesis and chapter 9. As you're doing that, I, I do have to mention that someone told me or asked me on the way out as they were going, they said, you know, haven't we studied this passage already? I said, yes, we have. Uh, and uh, uh, this, is, this was the third in, in a series uh, that we're doing on these seven verses. I said, but I think what you're, what, what's happening is you, you listen to my, my introduction, which is pretty much just the review, and I said all of that three times, and you thought that that's all I was teaching. I said, no, there's a lot of stuff afterwards, so that's what's important. I'm always going to review, especially for those who may not have been with us in the last few weeks, so you'll know where we are and where, we're, where we've been and why we're studying the passage that we're studying today. But Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As we continue on in the blessings and the warnings for a new world as given by God to Noah, we are told in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air. Upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Every morning, I'm sorry, every moving thing, my glasses don't seem to be working very well this morning. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with a life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. As we have seen thus far, the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has judged the wickedness of man by destroying the world through a global flood. All except Noah and his family. Plus the animals and the birds that were on the ark with them. All else has perished. As Noah and his family stepped out of the ark... They worshiped the Lord. They offered sacrifices to him. And the Lord God made a covenant with Noah, saying that he would never destroy the world by a flood again. But as we entered into chapter 9, God expounded on this covenant that he made with Noah. You see, it was from the descendants of Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and, and Japheth, that the world would be repopulated. And through the lineage of Shem, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would eventually come, the seed of the woman. The Lord blessed Noah and his sons, and he began to warn them of perils that they faced in the new world. And while he now provided a new food source for man in allowing them to eat the meat of animals, he also warned them. He warned them of the fear that the animals would have of man. And then he restricted them of drinking or eating the blood of animals, for that is where their life is. 
And that is really the focus of our attention today. The blood and the life that it represents. To God, it is a holy thing. It is a very serious thing. Today, as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand the importance of the blood, but but the Creator knew the importance from the very beginning. I want you to know that from Genesis to Revelation, there is a there is a thread. A thread that runs from the first book to the last book. Through 66 books of the Bible, written by 40 different authors over a period of over 2,000 years where many of these men could not really confer with one another. Some may have, but nonetheless, all of them who wrote the books of the Bible were inspired, were God-breathed, were, were inspired by God, I should say, to, to write what they did. It was God's message through man to us, but it was still God's message. And what's important about this message is what God says about the blood from Genesis to Revelation. Obviously, the idea of life being in the blood is an important one in the scriptures because you see the word is used 450 times in 378 verses in the King James Version of the Bible alone. So I want you to consider before we begin here in our study, I want you to consider some of the important verses that that deal with the life that is found in the blood. First of all, understand that blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover. Blood was a sign of mercy for his people, Israel. In Exodus 12, verse 13, we're told that the blood, as God is telling the people, he says, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. We're all familiar with the very fact that God had told them to take the blood of a young of a young lamb, a one-year-old lamb, and to take that blood and to sprinkle that blood, actually to apply the blood upon the doorpost and the lintel of the doorpost and the very basin at the bottom of the door, the blood was to be poured there. This was a seal, and it was a sign of mercy that as God brought his judgment to the land of Egypt, those who had the blood applied to their doors Within those doors, everyone would be safe. The importance of God's blood, or the blood, I should say, to God. Then later on in Exodus, blood was a seal of God's covenant with Israel. Exodus 24, verse 8, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. I have to tell you, it's going to be a little bloody what I'm going to be doing. I don't mean that as a pun. I just, I just, I just need you to know that we're going to see a lot of mention about this stuff that we would probably think, why is this happening? I mean, even today, you know, we're told, you know, be careful about people's blood. Well, of course, this is the blood of animals, but nonetheless, be careful about blood. You know what it carries and what it might have. You know, whatever. But listen, it's important to God to get this message out to us. Blood sealed God's covenant, Exodus 24. He sprinkled and he said, the blood, this is the blood of the covenant. Which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Why? Because God is bringing forth a type through that blood of something that is coming later. 
The blood itself sanctified the altar in Exodus 29, verse 12. Thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. Taking the blood of bulls and goats and calves and, and, and lambs and all. But nonetheless, blood was being applied to the altar to sanctify, to set it apart for the things that God wanted the people to learn. And then blood set aside the priests. Not only was the place where sacrifice was to be made, but the ones making the sacrifices on behalf of the people before God. They were to be sanctified by blood as well. Verse 20 of Exodus 29 says, Then shalt thou kill the ram and take of his blood and put it upon the tip of the right ear of Aaron and upon the tip of the right ear of his sons and upon the thumb of their right hand and upon the great toe of their right foot and sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And it's very interesting that uh, the, the, the priests all had to go through this. The blood was to be placed on their ears as a reminder of the fact that they were to hear everything from God. Everything that God said, they were not only to hear it and receive it, but to give it to the people. Because it was a life and death issue to listen to God. That's what the blood represented, life and death. So everything you hear, you must give forth as God's word. It was applied to the thumb. Why? Because it was saying to the priest, everything you do is serious. It is a life and death issue before God. And everything that you do must be done in obedience to God and for the glory of God. And the blood was applied upon the toe of the priests. So that wherever the priest would go and whatever, wherever it would be that God would send them, they were going understanding that it would be a life and death issue. To make sure that where they go, they are doing whatever it is for the glory of God and for the truth of God, and for the honor of God. And so you notice that this, the altar was sprinkled and then the priests were, were, were set aside by the blood. Well, then the blood itself, the work of the priests, the blood made atonement for God's people. Exodus 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. So even the people were going to be given this understanding that this is a life and death issue with God. God gives life and life is in the blood. But when it is extracted, it is extracted, it takes death to understand. Now, what God is giving a type of, the type of the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, we have no life as believers in Jesus Christ today, except that we be affected by the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And that blood was only the blood of Jesus Christ. Because while they had to offer blood of animals once every year, the blood of Jesus Christ was shed only once. And that, for our salvation. Now listen, Jesus in blood Jesus in Matthew 26 verse 28 speaks of the blood his own blood that sealed the new covenant for us. In Matthew 26:28 the words that we used in our communion service last week, for this is my blood of the new testament Jesus said, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. 
Now it is blood that seals us in that covenant that we've made with Jesus and that he's made with us. And then blood justifies us. We're not justified by the works we've done. We are justified by the work that Jesus Christ did in shedding his blood for us. Romans 5, 9 says much more than Paul says, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Saved from wrath. That's something to rejoice about, folks. We came in here today to rejoice. I tell you what, this is one reason to rejoice. We've been saved from wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ. Is blood important? It certainly is. It needs to be important to us. And not only are we sealed and justified by the blood of Jesus, but his blood brings redemption to us. We're told in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We have been redeemed. We have been bought back by God. And then blood brings peace with God. You see, look at the richness of, of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our salvation. I mean, it goes on and on. The blood brings peace with God. Paul in Colossians 1 verse 20 says, And having made peace through his blood, or through the blood of his cross, I should say, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. He says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We know it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone went to the cross for us. Jesus alone on that cross shed his blood for our forgiveness and for our sake. For our salvation. There's another reason to rejoice. Now. Blood also cleanses us. I've touched upon this a little bit last week. So this is a little bit of review. But in Hebrews 9 verse 14. Paul says how much more shall the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit. Offered himself without spot to God. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more shall the blood of Christ, over and above any blood of any other animal, blood, uh, I should say bull or goat or ram or calf or whatever, how much more shall the blood of Christ purge our consciences from dead works, cleanses us. And John says the same thing in 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then blood gives entrance to God's holy place. Listen, the reason that we could say this morning that we came in, in, in praise and worship to God before his very throne of grace was because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He made the way. It was by his blood that the curtain in the, in the temple was rent in two and torn from top to bottom to give access for us to come into the most holy place. And we're told in Hebrews 10 verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And we can come boldly before the throne of his grace to obtain mercy and to find grace for help in time of need because of the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. And then blood sanctifies us. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. If Jesus Christ does not die on the cross outside of the gates of Jerusalem, and he doesn't shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, if he doesn't do this, we are of all people most miserable because we would have nothing 
to set us apart, nothing to sanctify us, nothing to redeem us, nothing to save us. But Jesus suffered so that we can be saved, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be saved from God's wrath. Lastly, blood enables us to overcome Satan. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him, speaking of the enemy. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Listen, that thread from Genesis to Revelation is God's precious thread that was not somehow devised by man. It was God's work for us to understand the preciousness of life in the blood so that we will know how precious the life of Jesus' blood is to our eternal salvation. And only the blood of Jesus can affect our eternal salvation. Nothing else. So please understand, as we get back to Noah, that this post-flood world was vastly different than before. The vegetation would no longer be as lush. There were storms, there were seasons with dramatic temperature changes. The lifespan of man and the lifespan of animals would be drastically reduced. And the creation that once lived together in the Garden of Eden and even after sin entered the world now would be at odds with each other. Just because Noah and his sons and his, and his, his wife and his son's wives were the only ones saved, they were still sinners. And they were going to be giving birth to sinners who would give birth to more sinners. And we were going to discover once again that even though we, we had God in our midst and God in our presence, that at some point we would turn away from God again. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but they weren't going to get along. We'll, we'll see a little bit of that even in chapter 9 as we go on a little further later. But man and animals now, would live in a fear to a degree that they had never before experienced. There would be a lot of fear in this new world. And the Lord continued then to uh, his remarks to Noah and his, and his sons with a, with a warning and a command. And that's what's going to bring us to verses 5 through 7. So we can look at these verses today. Verses 5 through 7 of Genesis 9 says, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. This is a tremendously serious passage here. He says, surely your blood of your lives will I require. I will require the blood of your lives. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. For notice verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, made he man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. What does that say? As life is precious, 
it's serious to me that if anybody takes man's life and the blood out of him, so that shall be his punishment. But then he says in verse 7, And you, be ye fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. Secondly, second time that, that God says to Noah in these seven verses, to be fruitful and to multiply. That was the command, the mission of man after the flood. But in that same verse, God established an order for the new world for the protection of life for man. I want to say that again because I don't want you to miss what I mean by that. God established an order for the new world for the protection of life for man. Because we all need to remember, not just in Noah's time, but even more in ours, that this is an evil, wicked, sinful world. And therefore, the wicked, sensual passions of men must be controlled. Within society, passions are controlled and held check or held in check by law. This is why we have law. This is why we have laws. The Lord, of course, knew this. By the way, let me just say it in this, in this terminology. This is why we have laws in a free society. Because people seem to misunderstand what it means to have a free society. A free society does not mean that we could do whatever we want. Because if that was the case, you can carry that to, the, to an nth degree and, and say, I can do whatever I want in hurting anybody. But that's what law is there for, to keep you from doing that. So in a free society, there are still limitations. Please understand. The Lord, of course, knew this. And so he established the law protecting man's life. What we see in this passage is God instituting the death penalty for the new world after the flood. And notice that I said after the flood, and you'll see why in a moment. Now, I know, I know that this is a very controversial issue in our country today, in our society. But it's even controversial in the church as well. But I want you to bear with me, if you will. Just bear with me and hear me out today. Because many people today, in spite of the wickedness that is so apparent in our society and so apparent in the world, Many people continue to believe that man is essentially good. This is a this is a, a, a humanistic viewpoint. By the way, this is not God's viewpoint. <laughs> this is man's viewpoint. That man is essentially good. Uh, or that maybe there is there is still some good in, in man enough to combat the ravages of a wicked people who are not so good, but maybe they have a little bit of good in them. You see you see the, the way man thinks? Well, the man is essentially good. But, you know, we're, we, we may be just good enough to maybe hold off the ravages of wicked people who aren't so good, but they must still have a little bit of good in them. We keep trying. I mean, that, that's an optimistic viewpoint. We hope that everybody got a little good in them. Now, not all people in, in the world today are believers in Jesus Christ. 
But they're not all wicked either in the sense that they go around killing people. So where does that good come from? Please understand. Please remember this. God is a God who showers His goodness and His mercy and His grace upon all people. The scriptures tell us that. That it rains upon the evil and the good. The sun shines upon the evil and the good. There are a lot of people who don't know the Lord, and they're, you know, they're quite successful in life, and some of them are very, uh, are very honest and, and have a lot of integrity and all, and others that may not. But, but the point is that it is law that keeps us in tow, law that God has established. Back in the book of Genesis. So, understand, this thought that man is essentially good is really something that runs contrary to Scripture. For example, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So many people had turned their backs upon God. They had rejected God. They had denied God. They had even gotten to the point of refusing to believe that there was a God. So they turned their backs and began to live in their own societies, possibly with with some semblance of law, but nonetheless they became so wicked that they wanted to bypass every limitation, every boundary. That's what you read in the first four verses of chapter 6 of Genesis. But he saw the wickedness of man, that it was great, and that every imagination, not some imaginations, but every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is where man was because of the fall of man. Then later on in Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, Jeremiah writes here as the Lord speaks, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is speaking about the depravity of man. How depraved man is because we were born into sin. And each and every one of us was born into sin. And each and every one of us, whether we want to believe it or not, have, have, we have given some indication of that in our lives. You know when? In our earliest of ages. I still have, a, I still have, I still wonder where children, when they begin to speak, when they begin to communicate to us somewhere between the ages of one and, 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 and three, possibly four, but you know, between the ages of one and three, I wonder where they get this understanding that they, they learn the word mine. That's mine. Mine, 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 mine. And, and you know, where did that come from if they, if they were so good? Already they're, they're, uh, they're exhibiting some selfishness. What's the problem with sin today? Sin is all about selfishness. Sin is all about pride. Sin is all about us, not about anybody else. Where do they get that? 
Listen, you've had kids, you know, you get kids are about that old and then you have, you know, a sister or a brother that come with their families and they have kids and there's the little cousins come over and they want to play with with their cousins and they go to their cousin's toy box and they open it up and the little, you know, your little kid goes over there and says, no, 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 it's mine, 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 mine. I have yet to understand, I don't think anybody has shared with me of their child at one or two years old being so selfless, saying, oh, here's my, here's my toys. You can play with them all. Doesn't happen, does it? It's the nature of man. That tells us we're sinners. We're sinners. There's no essential good in man. How do we know that? Well, how about listening to David in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. When David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Notice that. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one. Not one. There was only one that was perfect. That was Jesus himself. Well, Paul took this passage of David's psalm, and in Romans chapter 3, as he is describing the dilemma of man, which is sin, he, he quotes from David. He says, as it is written in verse 10, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. Well, that's our problem in this culture and society in which we live today. There's no fear of God. But let me tell you, church, that we need to fear God. Now, I know that the fear of the Lord is is something that has to do with showing great reverence to God. That's that's right, and that's true. It is showing great respect for God. It is having that awe of realizing how great and how awesome and how big God is. But fear, the fear of the Lord goes way beyond that. We are to fear the Lord. We need to, we need to quit treating the Lord as buddy-buddy. He is awesome. He's not like us. Yet, He sent His only begotten Son to take upon Himself flesh, to do what needed to be done for us that we could not do for ourselves. And then Jesus said, but if you trust in Me and you believe in Me, not only will I call you My servants, I'll call you My friends. Yet God is still holy. And we need to fear Him. And we need to fear the Lord. 
Because you see, those who don't believe and trust in Him, there's no fear of God in His eyes or in their eyes. We must fear the Lord. Why? Because in Romans 3.23, Paul went on to say, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. But what is hard for some people to believe, and is in fact the greatest reality, this is a great reality, but it's hard for some people to believe, that is, that God is the God and author of life. Some people have a hard time believing that. Because they think, well, we, you know, we, don't, we don't understand, you know, God. He's, he's supposed to be the author of life. But at the same time, he says, you know, if a person takes life, then he's going to take that person's life. And that, that person's life has to be given. So he, he, he's... What we need to understand about God is, God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is true. God is perfect in all of his ways. Yes, he's merciful. Yes, he's gracious. He's compassionate. He's loving. But the Bible only says three times, God is holy, holy, holy. And because God is the giver of life, he's also the God of justice, true justice. Because he's the God of life, He has the power to give life and the power to take it away without any mistakes whatsoever. Why? Because he's just when he does that. He's the only one that can do that. We need to know God. We need to know about him. More than those people who say, well, you know, if God was so so good, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Okay, I mean, it's a valid question, but I think sometimes as Christians we get a little tired of hearing these these statements because they're so unbiblical. But if we can take them through the scriptures and tell them, listen, it isn't God that's wrong, it's us. We're the sinners. We're the ones who failed. We're the ones who were given everything and we said, eh, you know, and that's it. And yet God was merciful enough not to wipe us all out. He did save eight people. Did you know that he saved those eight people so that we could be sitting here today? He could have wiped them out too, started all over. Would we even be here if God wasn't merciful and gracious? So we need to let God be God. And we need to quit trying to reinvent things, just as we said a couple of weeks ago. People are trying to reinvent government, and they're trying to reinvent the, you know, God and, and the Lord, and they're trying to reinvent the church, and they're trying to reinvent the Word of God. No, listen, God's Word stands true from beginning to end through all eternity. That's what the Bible says. God never changes. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changes. So why are we trying to change him? Let's come from the perspective that God stays the same. Therefore, when he says something, we ought to take it to heart. We ought to believe what he says. Because there is good reason why God gives us 
these commandments. So, what he mandates here in this passage of Genesis 9 is due to his respect for the sanctity of life. What God is mandating here in this passage of Genesis 9 is due to his respect for the sanctity of life. In other words, the context for mandating capital punishment is, in fact, God's respect for life. I see some people would say, I don't understand that. Well, listen. Capital punishment teaches mankind to respect life. I know that may be hard to understand, but that's exactly what it's here for. Because I want you to consider that verse 1 of chapter 9 teaches, and by the way, verse 7 as well. But these verses teach respect for the life of the unborn. Did you know that? That verses 1 and 7 teach respect for the life of the unborn? Listen to what it says. God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There is a tremendous implication here given. He says, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to bring forth life. And then I want you to multiply that life. And then I want you to replenish this earth with that life. With every life that is going to have life blood running through them, that is their life. It is not only a great implication that this is what God is saying, but also there is an assumption here. This assumes a respect for the unborn future generations who, as we learn in verse 6, are made in the image of God. And then verses 2 through 4, we'll go this quickly here, verses 2 through 4 teach respect for animal life, plant life as well. Animal and plant life are said to be given to mankind, implying that man is God's appointed steward. We are the stewards of this earth still, and therefore of the animals on this earth, and we should be uh, understanding that we are the managers who will be held accountable for what God has created. Why? Jesus himself tells us that he's concerned about even one sparrow that falls to the ground. Didn't Jesus say that? He's concerned about even one sparrow that falls to the ground. Furthermore, we, we, we're not to brutalize animals. We're never to brutalize animals. Even, even though they were given for meat, there's a way to treat them so that we can use them for meat, but not to brutalize them. I mean, I, I thought about this week's, uh, the news on the, this week, from, I think it was in Las Cruces, some guy was arrested because he was kicking a, a dog, and I mean, uh, throwing a dog against, a, I think, a truck, uh, you know, truck panels or whatever. I, I, I mean, the dog came out in really bad shape. Well, they arrested this guy. And I kept thinking, what, you know, Here's, here's a guy that doesn't understand the preciousness of life. How precious life is. I mean, let, let's, let's look, for example, at what Proverbs 12, verse 10 says. Proverbs 12, 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his beast. A righteous man is to, to regard the life of his, of, of his animals that he uses for plowing and for, for cultivating the land. He's to respect them, treat them right, feed them, give them water, give them what they need. If it's a domesticated animal like a dog or a cat or whatever, love them and, and protect them and keep them, play with them a little bit. You know, they're, they're for the joy of your family. But treat them right. I mean, it's, it's in the Word of God. It says... A righteous man regards the life of his beast. 
It's interesting what it goes on to say, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. <laughs> Even the mercies of, of the wicked are a cruel thing. <clears throat> but the righteous man regards the life of his beast. But verses 5 through 7 of our text teaches us respect for all living human beings. Respect for all living human beings. And this is where some of that confusion comes in. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to those points in just a moment. Well, if we are to respect all living human beings, we need then to see, we, we then need to see the need for the establishment of public government. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that uh, in a generalized uh, uh, outline of this chapter, there are, uh, there are three types of government that we're going to deal with here. Public government, private government, and then uh, prophetic government. Of course, we'll come to all those later, but right now we're going to begin our view of, of what public government is. And as I mentioned then as well, public government is God's delegated authority to mankind. God's delegated authority to mankind to exercise and execute judgment. Its power rests in the use of force to enforce the laws of the land. This is why we have law enforcement. And I'm very blessed to have come alongside of law enforcement as a chaplain, to be there for the officers who every day put their lives on the line for us, to be able to enjoy the freedoms that we have and the things that God has blessed us with. That's an important thing to me. That's why I'm very passionate about this. But understand that this public government's power rests in the use of force to enforce the laws of the land. This, by the way, today also includes our military. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But Paul the Apostle, speaking of those in public government, those that we call public servants, he says to them in, in Romans 13 verse 4, and actually he's saying to the church, of these people... He says, he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. Well, I know that our law enforcement officers don't carry swords anymore. So, you know, we can say that he beareth not his 40 caliber in vain. You know, just to make it clear and you understand what he's saying here. But he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. I can assure you that those who are here in this place today that are in law enforcement have trained extensively in the law to know the importance of the use of, of all of their firearms and their weapons and even of themselves to keep that in a particular place until it's necessary to be used. We're, we're not living in a land or in a country, you know, where, you know, the government has laws only so that the people will respect the government. In this country, we have laws to keep the government from interfering with us, but at the same time to protect us. It's a real mind twister sometimes because of the way we sometimes uh, label governments today. But nonetheless, this is an important thing for us to understand. According to Paul here then, public government and public 
servants. Public government rests in the power of God's sword, not in man's. This is why it is important for us to pray for our law enforcement people. This is why it is important for me to encourage them from time to time. I I do graduations for uh, law enforcement uh, 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 groups, uh, police department, sheriff's office, and whatnot. And many times when I'm given the opportunity, I let them know, listen, you're not coming into a job. If you want to know the truth, and I'll show them Romans 13, I said, you're being ordained of God to do what you're doing. And I hope that you understand that, that you're serving the Lord before you serve anybody else. And if you have that mindset, then you'll understand the importance of doing what you do for the good of people. Because I know that sometimes people like to use the worst of, of, of these uh, agencies and all. And we try to build up the worst of, of, of them all. But you know what? There are a lot more good, there's a lot more good than bad. Okay, Please understand that. But here, here's the point. It does come back to the resting upon God's sword and not man's. It is God who has given the law to execute properly. Uh, Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, he writes, The authority for capital punishment implies also the authority to establish laws governing those human activities which, if unregulated, uh, could lead to murder, robbery, adultery, the the usurpation of property, boundaries, etc., Thus, this simple instruction to Noah is the basis for all human, legal, and government institutions. So what he is giving us is just the very basis that if a man sheds someone else's blood in murder for selfish reasons, then his blood is to be shed because of the respect of life that we are to have. So when looking at the whole of verses 5 through 7 in our text, According to God's command, when a man's blood is shed, there must be an accounting of it. Because in the image of God made he man. There's the reason. We are made in the image of God. We need to respect life. We are made in the image of God. We are to respect people because of that. Because man is made in the image of God, his life is inherently precious and cannot be taken without giving account to God. I mean, let's remember what the Lord said to Cain after he slew his brother Abel. And of course, his law hadn't been instituted yet. So, in Genesis 4, verse 10, listen to what God says to Cain after he kills Abel. He says, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Are you beginning to see the importance of blood to to the Lord? That, That here, even to Cain, he says, listen, I can hear your brother's blood crying out to me. Life has been expended in a selfish, hateful manner. And an accounting has to be given for it. And of course, God had his way of dealing with Cain. Eventually what we find is Cain leaves and all of his descendants become people who turn their back upon God. And one of the reasons why a flood was necessary for judgment to occur or to be used as, as a form of judgment to occur. So God issued the punishment for murder then. Notice again in verse 5 of Genesis 9. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. 
It is important to know that in its original languages, the Bible makes a distinction between killing and murder. Because the first thing people will say who are not quite as astute in the word of God, they'll say, doesn't, the ten, doesn't it say in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill? Well, that's what the way it's translated, but you have to understand the word that is used for the word kill there. Because in the Hebrew, that word literally means murder. Because there is another word that is used for just regular killing. And we'll talk about that kind of killing in just a moment. But the word in the Ten Commandments is, Thou shall not murder, take a life, selfishly and hatefully, and with spite, for selfish purposes, thou shalt not do that. Not all killing is murder, by the way. There are cases where there is just cause for killing. Aside, aside from the fact that now that man can eat meat, there is a certain way to slaughter animals so that you drain all the blood so there's no blood and therefore you can just eat the meat. Uh, so that's suddenly something that needs to be said as far as a humane way. But um, there are cases where there's just cause for killing. Self-defense is one of them. Capital punishment with due process of law. And then there is killing in a just war. Of course, then the arguments and the and all will be, are any wars just? Well, how many times did God send the children of Israel as they were going into the land? How many times did the children of Israel... Uh, receive a command from the Lord that says, go and take this city. God was, in fact, using the children of Israel to judge these nations that were, uh, had rejected God, and they were being judged by God through the armies of Israel. Think for a moment when Israel needed to be judged what God did. When the children of Israel had rebelled against God, God sent the armies of Assyria and brought judgment upon the northern tribes of Israel. When later on the, arm, uh, the, uh, the, the children of Judah, the southern part of Israel, when the children of Judah would become disobedient to God, they had been warned time and time again to turn back to God, but they didn't. So God sends the armies of Babylon. And Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem and takes into captive much of the people of Israel, of Judah. Takes them captive into Babylon. God judged his own people in this manner. Many were killed because of it. But what's interesting about Babylon coming against Israel is that when they came, they came in a very savage way. And rather than just kill the people or judge the people as he was judging his own people, they went way beyond that. To the extent that God then would judge Babylon even harsher because of the way that they had judged his own people. God is just. We have to trust in God's justice when he brings judgment upon his people. 
So there are other instances, by the way, where killing is accidental. There are laws written in the scriptures that take care of these issues. But that's killing, not murder. Murder is something you plan. Murder is something that the heart stirs up. Murder is something that is devised. And it's done because of a hatred of a person. And it's done because of a selfishness of a person. And so that is the distinction. And the scriptures also teach something. And that is, it teaches consistently that the punishment of the guilty is the role of human government so as to restrain man's depravity. Romans 13, if you will, I, I, I should have told you to keep your finger there, but in Romans 13, verses 1 through 4, it says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Now notice what Paul says. He says, For there is no power but of God, because he is the highest power. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So we need to respect our laws. A lot of people don't respect laws anymore. And it causes problems in the society. We can, we can look at what we might consider mundane. It isn't mundane, but we, we can consider something that doesn't seem so serious as just traffic laws and going 5, 10, 15, 20 miles an hour faster than what, you know, the sign may say. But that puts people in jeopardy because that's reckless driving. And many people have, have died on the roads because of that. And then they die because of drunk driving. That's an abuse of the law. That says people don't respect the law anymore. Paul called it, just, you know, he called it simply lawlessness. And he said that was one of, the, one of the signs of the last days, lawlessness. Well, that's the sign of today. People not respecting the laws. And then there's a, there are those who are trying to find ways around the law. I think we have a problem that if we have a society where we can vote about things, we ought to, you know, respect the, you know, the, the, the votes of the people. Doesn't that make sense? If we have to spend the, the funds, to, you know, to set up a, 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 an election for something, then we ought to respect the, you know, the will of the people. Now we have courts and minor courts that say, oh, we didn't like the way they voted, so we're just going to change it. Or even city councils. 
But that's for another day. You know, the Bible also teaches something else. And I'm almost done here, so listen carefully. It teaches that the guilt of unpunished murder defiles the land. The guilt of unpunished murder defiles the land. You don't punish a person for taking the life of another God's way. You don't do it God's way. It defiles the land. The children of Israel learned that lesson. Many nations will learn that lesson. I believe this nation is going to learn that lesson too. Because in Numbers 35, 31-34, it says, Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall be surely put to death. God is saying, do it my way. Because it respects life. And you shall take no satisfaction for him that has fled to the city of, of his refuge, that he should come again to dwell in the land until the death of the priest. And that's all about cities of refuge. We'll talk about that another time. Verse 33, So you shall not pollute the land wherein you are. For blood it defileth the land. And the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. The only way we're going to cleanse the land is to execute judgment my way. That's what God's saying. Defile not therefore the land which you shall inherit or inhabit, wherein I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Well, capital punishment was not only issued because life was precious to God, but it was issued to keep order in society. The passage we just read in Numbers reminds us that if murders are left unpunished God's way, then the land will be defiled. The land will be defiled. Can we say that we see this in our country today? I say yes. Our land is polluted. Our land is, is defiled in so many different ways. Why? Well, th- let's think about that. Fifty million children aborted, and for what reason? What reason? Was that not life? Yes, indeed it was. It was life. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. And replenish the earth. Because I respect life and the sanctity of it. Fifty million abortions. And for what reason? People murder for their own lustful desires. And usually without remorse. And without the worry of spending life in prison. Is it any wonder why our land is so polluted? Life as God would have us to appreciate it is no longer precious. We can thank our evolutionary scientists and humanists for that. All the way from Carl Sagan to Richard Dawkins, who both have said in so many words, life is not all that precious because it has no real meaning. It has no place to go. We come, we do some things for a number of years, and then we're gone. That's it. That's not what God says. From the very beginning, life to God is precious. And we need to respect it. 
Even animals would be held accountable as our text teaches. We didn't spend a lot of time there, but that's all right. But the taking of life for selfish reasons was forbidden by God. Only the one who can truly give life has the power to take it. Only the one who truly can give life has the power to take it. And so I want to leave you with something. I want to leave you with a, with a spiritual application for today. Because we need to understand that according to the Lord, murder is not just committed with weapons. Think about what we're told in 1 John 3 verses 14 through 19. And this will be where we close today. But John says, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. Love and life are to go hand in hand. We know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. The brethren being those all here who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to love one another. But then he says, he that loveth not his brother abides in death. That's a very strong statement, if we're only speaking speaking spiritually. But then notice what he goes on to say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now he applies those who would commit spiritual murder to be alongside of those who commit physical murder. That should wake us up. Then he says, hereby perceive we the love of God. Which I, which in my heart, John is saying to the church, by the way, you better understand the love of God here. You better be shaken to this point by what I just said about being a murderer who hates your brother. He said, hereby perceive we the love of God because he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We would gladly give our lives and our life blood for those that are our brothers in Christ. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need, and sheddeth up his bowels of compassion from him, how how dwelleth the love of God in him? Here's where the application begins. My little children, he says, let us not love in word, or neither in tongue, but in deed, and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. We're not to love with the words we say. We are to love by the actions that we show. This is why God gives us so many opportunities to clear ourselves up with each other. If if a brother has offended you, go to that brother. And work these things out. Talk about them. Work them out. And then pray. And then receive a brother. Because it's important for us to realize that we are to love one another. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. 
But what a strong statement John makes when he says, whoever loves not his brother abides in death. Because you see, hatred only leads to death. Abhorrence of someone leads to death. There's so much hatred around us. There's hatred in our own city. There's hatred in our sister city, Juarez. How how great that hatred is. But it's all around us. What allows us to shine as the light but the love of Christ? So that we are not attached to this murderous attitude, this murderous spirit that not, not only kills with, with implements, but with our very words. Let's consider that. And be encouraged to love in the love of the, of the Lord. Be encouraged to love in the love of Christ. And if you struggle with that, lay it down today. Just lay it down. And take hold of the love of Jesus. Because he loves each and every one of you. He gave you life. And the life, your life, is running through you in that blood. It's precious to God. 